0: What's going on, Hume? How you doing? <laughs> doing good? I'm doing good. About a year and a half ago, I planted a church in Phoenix, Arizona, and it has been one of the most thrilling and challenging things in my entire life, and a very dear friend of mine whose name is Kyle, uh, he moved him and his family about 40 minutes away with me and my family to plant this church, and Kyle is a worship leader. Every week he stands with our church family and leads us in singing uh, worship to the Lord, a lot like this team has done. Uh, about a month ago or so, maybe six weeks ago, Kyle's wife, her name's Kristen, she was experiencing some numbness in her hands. And uh, and her feet, and some uh, like a little bit of dizziness, and some motor control difficulties, and it was pretty concerning, as you might imagine. And so she took herself to the doctor to run some tests and to do some scans. And she heard kind of a scary thing from the doctor. She heard that they were going to test for a disease that's called MS, multiple sclerosis. And if you know anything about that disease, it is scary. It's a disease that. Um, eventually uh, debilitates and deteriorates your ability to control your body, and you eventually kind of waste away and oftentimes die an early death. And this was really really frightening for us to hear because she's in her young 30s she has three beautiful little kids and of course we love her so much and so she went into the doctor and she ran a bunch of tests and the day that she went to get the tests they had to return to the doctor tomorrow morning to get the readings of the test the next day and so kyle and kristen go to the doctor the very next morning and uh, many in our church have been praying and praying and praying And I get a call from Kyle in the doctor's office, and on the other side of the line, through tears, he tells me there is no signs of MS whatsoever, which was really good news. (laughs) And we cheered, and we cried, and we thanked the Lord, and we felt this immense relief. Don't you know when you have heard bad news or you have received some scary information to hear good news on the other side of that is like a burden lifted off your shoulders, isn't it? Doesn't it feel like such a relief to hear good news against the backdrop of bad news? Well, last night I had bad news and tonight I bring good news. And I'm praying and hoping that it will be a relief to us tonight, and it will be a joy to us as we savor the sweetness of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. In Christianity, the good news is called the gospel. Maybe you've heard that word before. That is the English rendering of a Greek word that just means good news. So every time you hear the word gospel, you can just think it's the good news. It's the happy announcement to the ends of the earth of what Jesus has done, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about the truth of the gospel, and here's the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the truth of what Jesus has done for me. This is the one idea we're going to talk about tonight, that the gospel, the good news, is the truth of what Jesus has done for me. And just before we get started, I want to give you the 60-second version of the gospel. We're going to dive into one particular part of it tonight, but here's the gospel, plain and simple, as clearly as I can deliver it to you. God spoke everything into existence, and he created it to be good. Good. He created mankind to bear his image and to enjoy relationship with him. But that humanity fell into rebellion against him by their willful choice and so invited the curse and condemnation of sin and death into the world and separated ourselves from God. But God was not content to leave us in that state, and so he sent the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to do what we could never do for ourselves. And this is what he did. He came to rescue us from our plight. He came to stand in our place and he came to remove the curse of sin that we had brought on ourselves and he did it by living the perfect life that we were intended to live but never could, then by dying on the cross as a sacrifice to pay for the debt that we owed and then rising from the dead three days later so that anyone who puts their faith and trust in him... could be forgiven of all of their sin, given the gift of eternal life, and adopted into God's family forever. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus lived, died, and rose again to produce salvation for all who believe. And here's the kicker of the gospel. And this is what I really want to talk to you about tonight. Jesus did all of that. All of those miles away and all of those years ago, all that Jesus did was for you. Jesus was not thinking about someone, somewhere else, far away in a different time so that it is completely unrelated to your life. Though you may think it feels abstract or it feels distant, the good news of the gospel is that it's for people like you and me. That's what makes it good news. If it was just a historical fact, though it is that... Or if it, was just f- if it was just an idea, if it was just a concept, if it was just something some guy did a long time ago and it didn't apply to my life, it wouldn't be very good news because it wouldn't make an impact. But the, the core of the good news is that it was for people like you and like me. He did it so that you and I could be rescued, so that you and I could be forgiven and free both now and forever And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight, that the gospel is about what Jesus did for me, for you and for me. In fact, as we touch on three more chapters in the gospel of John, I want you to understand this, that the gospel, all that I just explained to you in the last couple minutes, it could be summarized in just four words. This is the good news of the gospel as succinctly as I can say it. This is the good news of the gospel, Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. It's just four words, and it is the shortest encapsulation of the gospel that I have, and it is the core idea of what I want to talk about tonight, Jesus in my place. So you might be asking, what did Jesus do for me? How in the world does what this man who lived and died 2,000 years ago, how in the world does it apply to someone like me? And this is what I want to show you in three parts, three aspects of Jesus's work for you. Jesus in my place. Here's the first aspect. He was condemned so I could be released. He was condemned so I could be released. This is Jesus in my place. You see, Jesus, all through the Gospel of John, like the video said, he has been claiming to be God himself. He has been performing miraculous signs that testify to his divine power. And then he has been speaking very clearly and explicitly about his divine identity. He's been telling people, I am God the God of the Bible. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have eternally existed. I have the power and the prerogatives of God himself. I can open the eyes of the blind. I can walk on water. I am God. And the religious leaders of the time did not like that very much. In fact, they accused him of what was at the time a crime worthy of capital punishment. It was the crime of blasphemy. That he was so dishonoring the name of God by taking it upon himself that he was worthy of death. But because the Jewish people right now were under Roman occupation, they were actually not allowed to execute criminals without Rome's permission. And so Jesus is drugged before the Jewish religious leaders, and they say, you are worthy of death, but we can't execute you, so we're going to shuffle you over to a guy whose name is Pilate who is a Roman official, who has the authority to give the green light for Jesus to be crucified. And I want to pick up in John chapter 18, when Jesus is standing right in front of Pilate, starting in verse 37. Then Pilate said to Jesus, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. I want you to think for a moment just about what we've been talking about this week. That there is a God who is the source of absolute truth. It's delivered through the scriptures. It's embodied in the life and ministry of Jesus. Look at this statement right here. Jesus says, this is the reason I was born. This is the reason I exist on planet earth to bear witness to the truth. Jesus says, I'm here for a very clear reason, to testify, to bear witness to the truth. Pilate responds like this. Well, Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? Now, He asked this question, not earnestly and honestly seeking an answer. He wasn't standing in front of Jesus and saying, Jesus, can you help me to understand you you are the king, you are the son of God who has come down from heaven into the world, and you just said your whole job is to bear witness to the truth. Can you tell me what the truth is? Because that would be an honest way to approach Jesus in this moment, but he is saying this like a hardened skeptic. Almost with a scoff, he says, what is truth? Now, how do I know that? Because he doesn't even wait around for a response. Do you see the very next words in the text? And after he had said this, he went back outside. He didn't even wait around for an answer. Apparently, Pilate needed to come to Hume 2022 to learn what truth is because he wasn't going to wait for Jesus to tell him the answer. How tragic that Pilate stood right in front of the one who was truth itself embodied. The one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And he had it. He said, what is truth? But then he walked away. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? So, at the time of the Passover, with Rome's rule and occupation over the nation of Israel, they had kind of a deal. When, when they were celebrating this big national holiday, this big religious celebration, Rome would kind of throw them a bone, give them a gift, and they would release a prisoner and set someone free that had had crimes against Rome. And here, he says, do you want me to set Jesus free? He's just said to them that he doesn't really find any fault with him And so he says, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And verse 40, the crowd, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So even though Pilate finds no fault in Jesus, he dismisses him, and in a moment he will condemn him to death. But the text tells us that the person that got to go free was not Jesus, it was a man named Barabbas. John tells us he was a robber. This man was an insurrectionist, most likely a murderer. And here's what Pilate does in this moment with Jesus, who has opened the eyes of the blind, who has cured leprosy, who has never sinned, who has never done an act of violence. Jesus, who is spotlessly innocent and perfect. The other gospel accounts tell us that people came and tried to make accusations against Jesus, but they couldn't even find two people who could agree to make up fake allegations against Jesus. That's how spotless his record was. He was innocent. And then over here we have Barabbas, who is guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. In fact, he's already been thrown in prison because he was sentenced as an insurrectionist, a robber, and a murderer. And Pilate trades away the innocent Jesus for the guilty Barabbas. Barabbas goes free, and Jesus is condemned to the cross. Now, a couple years ago, there was a really uh, popular show on Netflix, perhaps you caught... Uh, the show. It's called Making a Murderer. Anyone see that show? It was centered on uh, a character named Stephen Avery, who spent 18 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And this is kind of the beginning of the show, is Stephen Avery gets out of prison because new evidence was presented that exonerated Stephen from a murder that he was declared to be guilty of. He hadn't committed it, and yet he was locked away for 18 years, an innocent man. But the whole dynamic of the show, if you watch the show, is actually that apparently Stephen Avery is not that innocent, because he actually becomes, he comes under suspicion about another murder shortly after being released from prison. So it's such an interesting show because this guy who apparently was innocent for this one crime may not be innocent for this other crime, and you're trying to figure it out. Jesus, right here, under the rule of Pilate, he receives a sentence for a crime that he didn't commit. But the difference between Stephen Avery and Jesus is that Stephen Avery was flawed and corrupt and sinful, just like you and I are, and Jesus was perfectly innocent. If you were to dig up Jesus' file and you were to pull out all of the things that he had ever done wrong in his life, the people that he had hurt and the laws of God that he had broken and the sins that he had committed, there would be nothing on the record. Zero. If you were to play back the movie reel of Jesus' life, it would be perfect integrity in every word action thought and motive every second of his life he was perfectly innocent and yet here he's traded for a criminal now make no mistake here despite the fact that you can look at jesus and say oh man isn't that so sad what a helpless victim dragged away for a crime he didn't commit. He was innocent. Man, isn't that tragic? Jesus is not a helpless victim. In this moment, he is acting as a sovereign savior. Jesus did not trip and stumble and fall into this scenario in which he was condemned to die. He marched there purposefully for you and for me. He was condemned as a criminal as part of God's plan of redemption for all of humanity that would put their trust in Jesus you see in this moment Barabbas who is undeniably guilty he represents us he's just like us because Barabbas is a sinner and Barabbas is guilty the evidence against Barabbas is is stone cold there's no case to be made that he wasn't guilty and that's just like us And yet, because Jesus was condemned in this moment, this murderer and robber gets to walk out of the jail free. And that's just like you and me, because Jesus was treated like Barabbas deserved, so you and I could be treated like Jesus deserved. Jesus gets to go to the cross, Jesus gets condemned, and the one who is guilty of the crimes gets to walk free. the reality for you and for me is that one day we will stand on trial before the holy God who created us. And if we stand on our own strength, if we stand before God with only the record of our own obedience to show him, we will be condemned. Maybe even this week, as we've been talking, as we've been moving through this me- uh, these messages, and we've talked about truth, and we've talked about the scriptures, and we've talked about Jesus, and even yesterday when we talked about sin, maybe this week, as you have heard the truth of God's word proclaimed, maybe you have felt condemned. Maybe even as I've been talking, you've kind of recoiled from some of the things that I've said, because to you they feel like shame and they feel like guilt. And it feels like judgment and condemnation upon you. Maybe you think about your past and you think about the things that you've done and you feel the weight of guilt and shame and you feel condemnation. The the greatest news in the world that I could share with you tonight, the truth of what God has done for you is that Jesus bore condemnation so that you would never have to. You do not have to walk out of this room bearing the weight of guilt and shame. Jesus was condemned so you could be released. Jesus intentionally went to the cross condemned as a criminal so that you could walk away free as an innocent man or woman so that you could be released from the condemnation that is rightfully yours because of your sin. This is the truth of the gospel. Jesus in my place, he gets what I deserve. He is condemned so I could be released. There's another aspect of Jesus' substitution work, and it's this the second aspect of Jesus in my place. He was killed so I could be forgiven. He was killed so I could be forgiven. John 19 will go on as we carry on this narrative of the last few hours of Jesus' life. It culminates here in John 19, 16 to 18. It says, so he, that's Pilate, Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. Delivered them over. Jesus was crucified with a couple other guys. And then verse 16 says so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha and there they crucified him and with two others one on either side and Jesus between them and then verse 30 says when Jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and he bowed up his head, and he gave up his spirit. At the end of a lifetime of honoring God, and a lifetime of serving people, and a a three-year public ministry of miraculous healings and compassionate care for the least and the lost, this Jesus, the one who Claimed to be God and then validated his claims with supernatural power. This Jesus, he was condemned, he was whipped, he was beaten, he was mocked and spit on, he was laden with a heavy wooden beam and forced to drag it through the city and then outside the walls of the city to a hill where he was nailed to that wooden beam, which was then raised up into the sky so that with all of his blood loss and the weight of his body hanging down and his limbs torn to pieces, he would suffocate and die as a public humiliation on a Roman torture instrument to teach everybody a lesson that they shouldn't get out of line. That's what happened to Jesus. He gets nailed to a cross and he is crucified. He dies a brutally violent death in a publicly horrifying fashion. But here's what I'm here to tell you oftentimes when we think about the cross, if you've ever thought about the cross before, those are the very visceral things that come to mind. We think about how awful it must have been for his flesh to be torn apart by the whips and for his ankles and his hands, his wrists, to be driven through with spikes into the wood. And we think about the the pain of it, and the awful physical torment of that reality. We think about that, and rightfully so, but I'm here to tell you that the significance of what is happening on the cross goes well beyond the physical pain that Jesus endured. In fact, if Jesus only went to the cross and endured a physical death, then you and I are still stuck in our sin What happens on the cross of Christ is something much greater than a brutal execution. In fact, what's happening on the cross when Jesus dies, we call substitution. This is... Jesus dying so that we can be spared death. It's called substitution. That's Jesus in my place. He was not just bearing physical pain. Much more importantly, in fact, eternally more importantly, Jesus on the cross was bearing the full weight of the righteous wrath of God that ought to have been aimed at those who had committed sin against this holy God. Jesus was the spotless and innocent one and he goes to the cross having no sin of his own to pay for but he is treated on the cross as if he had lived a million lifetimes of sin and God the Father looked upon Jesus and directed the fury of his judgment on his innocent son so that he would not have to direct it at you and me. And when we stop and think about that for a moment, it's, it's hard to even fathom. When you think about the wrath of a holy God poured out upon his own son, it actually makes the physical element of the cross pale in comparison. He was bearing something infinitely more painful than a broken and bloody body. He was bearing the curse of sin and separation from his father with whom he had lived in perfect eternal relationship since before time began. The scriptures say that the father turned his face away from the son and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that question is that Jesus was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Jesus was killed so I could be forgiven. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that is the cross, that we might die to sin And live to righteousness. And then get this, this quotation from Isaiah 53. This is the glorious gospel in a simple metaphor. By his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, you have been healed. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done for you. His death on the cross was not merely an example of how to suffer uh, unjustly. He was not just a martyr who was wrongfully condemned. Jesus went to the cross as a substitute. He went to the cross in the place of sinners who would place their confidence in him. This is always the way it's been in God's economy. Since the earliest days of a holy God relating to sinful people, it was a sacrifice that would cover their sin. And if you've read the Old Testament, you will know about the sacrificial system where the people of Israel, God's chosen people, in order to atone for their sin, had to find animals without blemish and had to bring them to the altar and spill their blood and kill them upon the altar so that they could bear the curse of death so that the people of Israel would not have to. They were it was as if they were uh, putting the sin of the nation and the sin of the people upon this animal, and it was bearing the sin unto death. But the problem with the sacrificial system was you had to kill animal after animal and goat after goat and sheep after sheep because the Bible tells us it's impossible for the the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin once and for all. But when Jesus comes, like John the Baptist called Jesus in John chapter one, he calls him the Lamb of God the perfect, the ultimate, the spotless lamb, the sacrifice that would exist once and for all to take away sin, not at one time, to have to repeat it again, but would take away sin forever. And this is what happens on the cross. Jesus is the spotless lamb, the son of God, who removes our sin once and now and forever and for all time. When I was a little kid, my parents were kind of, uh, there was a long stretch of my young childhood where my parents were like health freaks. We used to, we, we had like no, nothing good in our house. We never had any sugary cereals. Whenever I slept over at my friend's house, my friend's moms would always catch me at like 6.30 in the morning crushing three bowls of Fruit Loops because I didn't get them at my house. And so I would, I would get as much sugary cereal as I could at my friend's house. And so I, I, was, I was rolling up to school at this era of my life with horrible snacks. You know where, you're like, your mom packs you a lunch, and you bring it to school, and you open it up to kind of discover what's going on there when the lunch hour comes? I would always open it to something soul-crushingly disappointing, like an apple. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you open it, and you're like, oh, mom, you did me dirty. Come on, are you serious? Because I'm watching all these other kids. They're eating fruits like, they're eating snacks like Gushers. You know Gushers? Come on. They're eating fruit roll-ups. Okay, I wonder if you're too young. Y'all ever heard of dunkaroos? Yeah. Come on. I'm looking at this, I'm looking at this other kid eating dunkaroos, and I've got like I've got like kale chips in my lunchbox. So here's what I would do. Here's what I would do. I, I would take my horrible snacks. I would take my, my snacks that were that were, you know, not the best. And I would go out, I would go out into lunchtime and I would like hustle to try to make somebody give me a lopsided trade. <laughs> I'm trying to give away like a Nutri-Grain bar so that I can get your gushers. Like I'm trying to make this as unfair as possible so that I get something delicious. And sometimes I would succeed. I would get something way better than what I gave. And when I did, I got the greatest trade. I got a lopsided deal. And, and here's what I'm here to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the most lopsided trade that has ever existed in history. It is the most unfair deal that you have access to because Jesus died on the cross. And here's what the deal is. The best deal in the universe. You have the opportunity to give to God all of your sin, all of your burdens, all of your shame, all of the things that you have done that still keep you up at night, all of the memories that you bear of the things that have been done to you or the things that you have done, the ways that you've hurt people and the shame that you bear because of it, you get to give God all of that and in its place, he will trade you his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his healing and his protection There is no trade in the universe that is more lopsided than that. And in fact, Christian theologians the world over have called the substitution of Jesus the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about the wonder and the love of a trade like that, that the God of the universe, the one who made you, is offering you right now. God says, I will take your sin. I will take your curse. I will take your burden, and I will take your death, and I will give you my love and my life in its place. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus was killed so I could be forgiven. There's one more thing that we got to talk about. (laughs) It's the best part of the story because Jesus didn't stay dead, Jesus is alive. And so, the third aspect of Jesus in my place is this He was raised so I could be alive. Not only am I forgiven, but I am granted the gift of eternal life because of the resurrection power of Jesus. I want to just read these nine verses to you from John 20 because they are awesome. It says this, now on the first day of the week, this is Sunday morning at sunrise, and Jesus was crucified on Friday, and he has been laid in the tomb with the the stone rolled over the mouth, he's been wrapped in linen, and he's been dead for three days. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, that's one of Jesus' followers, she came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's John, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who's writing this gospel, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. That's so funny. John's like, I'm fast. And he reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, I want you to just think for a moment. This is the apostle John. And if you read any of the accounts of the Gospels, it's almost undeniable that John was Jesus' closest friend in the world. And when he writes 1 John, this letter to the churches that he was pastoring, he says the son of God who came into the world and we heard him and we saw him and we touched him and we lived with him and we knew him and we related to him. John was close to Jesus. John was Jesus' friend and then he stood by as his Lord and his master, the one he gave three years of his life to follow. He stood by and watched while he was brutally murdered on that cross and while he breathed his last breath and died. This is Jesus' friend. You have to imagine the weight of his grief as he sees the one that he watched heal and teach and love and serve people, watched him crucified and killed. And then at sunrise on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene comes running to Peter and John and says, he's not there. I went to the tomb and the stone is gone and his body's not in there. And John and Peter go sprinting to the tomb. And verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. (laughs) This is so awesome. Jesus was stone cold dead. No breath in his lungs, no beat of his heart, no activity in his brain. He was dead. And he was wrapped up and laid in a tomb with a big stone over the top, but then just like he promised, just like the scriptures had foretold, and just like he told his disciples on multiple occasions, he burst out of death in resurrection power and by his own ability made his dead body to live again. And in so doing, he defeated death on behalf of everyone who puts their trust in him. Jesus conquered the grave and fully defeated Satan, sin, and death and hell so that you and I could be ushered out of our death and given the gift of eternal life. This is the power of the resurrection. Now, I have to believe that when these guys ran up on the tomb and saw that Jesus was not there and then in the days and weeks to come, Jesus himself in bodily form would actually appear to them and would teach them and would talk to them that it had to bring clarity to this episode that happened probably about a year earlier in the life and the ministry of Jesus. You may know the story of John chapter 11, when Jesus' dear friend Lazarus died, and he was laid in the tomb for four days, and Jesus takes his disciples, and he goes to the tomb of Lazarus, but before he does, what so shocked the world and incited the opposition of the Jewish leaders, which was raise Lazarus from the dead, right before he did that, he had a special conversation with Lazarus' sister. Her name was Martha. And in that conversation, he said this, John eleven, twenty-five 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, you need to understand that right before Jesus said that, Martha had said to Jesus, I know he will rise again in the resurrection. Jesus is talking to Martha about her dead brother. And she says, look, I know there's, there's going to be a resurrection at the end of the age. And I know he will be alive again in the resurrection. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, I am the resurrection. I have the power of life from the dead in me. Your hope is not in a future event. It is in a living person. It is in me. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says this amazing thing. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Death is the consequence that we deserve for our sin, and death is the great enemy of mankind. And we experience death. We experience physical death that removes us from this life, and we experience spiritual death that separates us from God. But the good news that Jesus told Martha and the good news that he would tell you tonight is that when Jesus walked out of that grave, he demonstrated the fact that he has defeated death and that you no longer need to face the sting of death that separates you from God. You can be free from death and you can be given the gift of eternal life. So even on the day that you breathe your last breath and you stand face to face with the holy God, you can do that in full confidence of your indestructible eternal life that has been granted to you through the resurrection power of your Savior Jesus. Now at this moment, I want to ask you to consider and to respond to the question that was asked of Martha. I want you to think about this question because I love that Jesus in talking to Martha, he looked right at her and he said, I am the resurrection and the life He said, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And anyone who believes in me will never die. And he didn't just leave it as some sort of abstract theological concept. He looked right in the eyes of this woman that he cared for. And he said, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And so I would ask you to consider. And in a moment, I'm going to invite you to respond to that very question. Do you believe what Jesus just said about himself? Do you believe that Jesus was condemned like a criminal so you could walk free as an innocent person in the throne room of God? Do you believe that Jesus was crucified on that cross and bore the full weight of the wrath of God unto death so that you could be forgiven of your sin penalty and your your record could be wiped away and you could be washed as white as snow? Do you believe this? And do you believe that that Jesus who once was dead was raised to eternal life in resurrection power and that through his resurrection, you can be made alive? Do you believe this? Do you believe that what Jesus did was for you? And would you respond to that tonight? Maybe there are some of you in the room and you think, as you've heard all of this described, whether you've heard it many times or this is the first time you've ever heard it, as I've been talking, you've been thinking, I've never related to that. I've never interacted with that. I've never truly believed that and lived like it's true. And in just a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to do that, to respond in faith, to believe this to say with your heart and with your life, I believe that what Jesus did was for me. Not just for someone else, but for me. I believe he was condemned so I could be released. I believe that he was killed so that I could be forgiven, and I believe that he was raised so that I could be alive. Do you believe this? If you do, it's time for us, all of us, if we believe this, too repent from our sin and to put our trust and our hope in Jesus and to walk with him by faith. For just a moment with me, if you could, would you bow your heads? I'm going to pray in just a minute, but I want to be able to pray very specifically for those who know that they need to believe this tonight whether this is news to you, all of this about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this is new to you and you think, I want that. I want to receive the gift that God offers me through the finished work of Christ. I want to know his love and his forgiveness. Or maybe you've heard it a a thousand times, but you have never made a decision to put your trust in Jesus wherever you find yourself, if tonight you would respond and say, I need that. I want that. I believe that what Jesus did for me. Would you do me a favor and would you raise your hand so that I can pray for you specifically? Don't be shy. Raise your hand tall. Everyone keep your heads down. Raise your hand so that you can receive the love of Jesus. I want to pray for you in just a minute. Amen. All right, you can put your hands down. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for the fact that you loved us enough to send your one and only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life that we could never live and to die on that cross to pay for our sin and to rise from the dead so we could have eternal life. God, we just are so humbled before you. We don't deserve your grace. We could never have earned your love, and yet you have lavished it upon us. And I just want to pray for each of the people that just raised their hand. God, I pray that your spirit right now would invade their lives with the reality of your love. I pray that you would touch them and help them to know, God, that you are very real and very present and very near to them in this moment that if they desire to receive your forgiving grace, that they can have it right now. And I pray that your spirit in your kindness would move them to repentance, that they would commit to walk away from their rebellion against you, and they would instead walk in obedience to you. They would humble themselves before you and submit to Jesus Christ as their King and their Lord, and they would receive his grace as their Savior. And God, I pray that as they do, you would let them know that their sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, that they who once were orphans have been adopted into your family, that they who once were alienated and far off have now been brought near to you. Those who were your enemies have now been made your friends, and those who were dead and blind are now alive and made to see. God, thank you for your grace. We love you, and we need you so badly. Would you you interact with us right now, God? Would you help us to know you more deeply and follow you more faithfully? We love you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here's what I want to do. In just a minute, we are going to We're going to finish our time together by singing. I think that's an appropriate way to celebrate all that God is doing in our midst. But before we do, I want to just give, I want to celebrate what God has done. And so if you would be so bold, uh, Jesus says in God's word that if if you will identify with me if you will testify to your allegiance to me before men then I will testify of my allegiance to you before my father and so I wonder if those students who raised their hand if you would do me a favor just in this moment so that we can celebrate with you would you stand to your feet right now go ahead right where you're sitting would you stand to your feet those who raised their hands and we're going to celebrate new life in Christ come on let's celebrate new life (laughs) Amen, amen, don't sit down just yet. We love you guys and we are so thankful for the work of God in your life. This is the first step on a long journey of following Jesus. We who come from your churches, I can say this on behalf of your counselors and your youth pastors, we are committing to walk this road with you. Not to leave you in isolation, but to link arms with you as we follow Jesus together. One more time, can we give it up for these guys? And before we go, can everyone stand to your feet and let's celebrate by singing and thanking the Lord for his grace?